Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I have Dr. Eric Prosco from the University of Georgia on the phone with us. Eric, good afternoon. Okay, good afternoon, fellas. Thanks for uh, having me on today. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to visit with you and share some information with you and things that are happening over here in South Georgia. A lot of y'all may know Eric or have been around Eric some. He's been to the short course several times. Most recently, Eric, year before last, like 2021 maybe? Yeah, I think it was probably two to three, probably three years ago. Somewhere. Yeah, so 2021. He combined with Daniel Stevenson are my go-to people for peanut weed control questions. Usually if I can't get Daniel, I'll text Eric, or if I can't get Eric, I'll text Daniel. And between the two of them, I'll usually get an answer for my peanut weed control needs because my knowledge of that subject is very minimal. So, Eric, I always appreciate your help, man. Hey, always glad to help. Uh, and uh, we see uh, obviously we see a lot of things over here being the, the amount of acres that we have. So if I can share an experience with you all that can keep some of your growers out of the ditch, I'm more than happy to do it. So I start off these things, Eric, asking some kind of off-the-wall questions. I've done better ones at times. One I'm kind of fixated on recently, asking folks like yourself, is what is the craziest thing you've ever seen when you've gotten called to a field? There's a lot of crazy things, right? When you think about I've been been in extension now for, uh, I would say, five years as a county agent and then about 24 as a specialist, so like 30, 31 years, so. I probably forgot some of the things, but I, I think one of the interesting things, and it didn't really have anything to do with the problem. This was many, many years ago. I was with the county agent over in East Georgia in, in um, Burke County, which is over on the far eastern side of our state, still in our peanut belt. And we were walking in this field, and I heard this ruckus. And I was, you know, we were looking around, and I didn't know what was going on. Of course, you're always worried about snakes and stuff in peanuts field, peanut fields. And we heard this ruckus, and the, I turned around, and this group of what do you call a group of otters? I don't know, but a, a mom and pop <laughs> otter like ran right in between my legs, and then two seconds later, of whatever their babies are called, kids or whatever, I'm not sure. About five or six of them came running, and I didn't know. I was about ready to jump out of that peanut field because I thought it was. You know, we're always, like I said, always worried about rattlesnakes or water moccasins, but. Uh, that was probably the funniest thing that ever happened to me uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. I got run over by a, a pod or whatever you call them, a river otters. <laughs> a pod. <laughs> I don't a pod, know. A pod would be, a pod would be uh, whales, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. What, it might be a gaggle, Tom, a gaggle of otters. Yeah, so maybe somebody out there knows what a what a family of ot- river otters or is a called. Clouder. Is it a group of cats and clouder? Yeah, and crows is a murder, isn't it? A murder of crows. A murder of crows, correct. Who comes up with that? I thought that was pretty pretty funny. I never would have thought to see river otters. But, yeah, that's probably one of the funniest. And we were laughing when we, cause we first thought it was some uh, large animal or uh, a giant snake about to eat us, but it was uh, some playful river otters. Eric, sometimes I feel like, we lead the charge on herbicide resistance, and then sometimes I feel like Arkansas does, and then sometimes I feel like y'all do. But uh, I do know for a fact that y'all have the dubious honor of having the very first glyphosate-resistant palmer 
in your state. So what's going on in Georgia in the world of herbicide resistance now in 2023? So I guess you're coming up on getting close to 20 years uh, since we first found that first glyphosate resistance. That was about uh, somewhere around 2003, 2004. And so it's been about 20 years. And then since that time, you know, we've discovered uh, atrazine or triazine resistance, uh, ALS resistance. And then uh, my colleague, Dr. Culpepper, just confirmed some PPO resistance kind of from the same area where that all started. So, you know, we now have four resistances in, in our some of our pigweed. Now, we don't think the uh, PPO resistance is, is you know, if you find one, that means there's probably some another place. You just happen to find the one that came on top to the radar first. So there's, if there's right. one, there's probably another somewhere. But we're hoping that our farmers and our growers are doing a good job, first of all, recognizing that that could happen. Because it only, it took three years. That PPO resistance developed in a three-year time period in a soybean field that was treated with uh, Valor and Reflex, Valor of planting and Reflex over the top. So as we all know, that's it's a good weed control program, but it's a terrible recipe for the development of resistance. So within three years, uh, they pushed the population towards uh, PPO resistance. So since that time, that field's been taken out of production, and I think it's in pecans now. So uh, that'll help kind of keep that problem sort of localized, I think. But knowing that that can happen is is kind of scary, right? We've, we've, that's happened with every herbicide that we know about. So trying to make sure that our growers are aware of the fact that we do have PPO resistance and continue to try to diversify from the away from the PPOs when we can. So you know, for me, one, a good example, I don't know how you guys feel about this, is you know, corn's one of the only crops that we grow that we don't have to use a PPO herbicide in. And a lot of guys want to use Valor in a burn down. It's for residuals. It's, it's great in a burn down. But we don't have to do that in corn. And so I've been trying to get folks to think about that when we're, we're of course, we're well past burn down now. We've got corn that's chest high. Y'all probably do too. Just for example, not using Valor in a pre-plant burndown. Not because I don't like Valor, don't get me wrong. It's just I'm trying to save Valor for our cotton and peanuts because if we lose that to, or we have more resistance problems, that's just going to be more problems for everybody. So in that field situation where Culpepper confirmed that, had they been growing continuous soybeans in that particular situation? Yeah, that was a three-year soybean, 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 soybean. And basically, that's what happens when you do that, right? But like I said, the grower recognized that that was an issue, and then he's moved out of soybean in that area. You mentioned that Valor pre-plant treatment. What, what's your message to folks on a burn-down treatment and then how it affects the emergence of the summer annual weed? So, for example, we do a lot of fall burn-down. We'll start putting out residuals different scenarios across the landscape from October all the way out till March. And obviously the the dose into those summer weeds is going to vary with that timing. So what's your message on that? As you know, we don't do a lot of fall burn down, very little. We may do some, I wouldn't technically call it a fall burn down, but after corn harvest, we're trying to get growers to come in and manage weeds after corn because we'll get our corn off and July and August, and we have a long time before we get a frost, if we get a frost. So that's a good time of the year to take care of weeds like uh, tropical spiderwort and pigweed. 
this kind of thing. So we don't really put out what I would call like a truth ball. But what, what we have been telling growers to do is to try to get a residual in with our spring burn down. So, for example, a common burn down for us would be glyphosate, 2,4-D. And then if we're going to plant peanuts or cotton, uh, we're going to encourage a grower to put a couple ounces of Valor there for one reason, to try to keep pigweed from emerging in between the time period when you spray that burn down and then you actually get in the field. Right, that could be, you know, sometimes it's uh, seven days, sometimes it's 30 days. It just depends on what's going on at the farm and what kind of weather we got. So uh, having a couple of ounces of Valor in with our burn down, our pre-plant spring burn down is what we've been recommending to give us some protection against early emergence of Palmer. Now, we could use other things if we wanted to, but Valor's just probably become the most popular because it's so effective on Palm. And then we can still use, in my case, for peanuts, for example, if we use two ounces pre-plant in a burn down, we can use another two ounces of planting and still do a good job of controlling pigweed and peanuts. I think we get some control, again, depending on the timing of that burn down treatment. I think we get some control of the summer annuals, depend on the timing, plus the emergence of the summer annuals. So in 2023, we had a decent flush of Palmer sometime in March when we, we got some corn in and, and temperatures had really warmed up. And then we got a bona fide freeze after that, which took care of the emerged summer annuals there. So it just really varies. But with our fall burn down, I'll occasionally have a conversation with folks about that application in the fall affecting emergence of summer annuals the following spring and the the scenarios that would lead you to that are just few and far between that's just too long of a lag time there you know i was going to ask you guys if you uh you know one of the things we're seeing that's interesting is wild radish you know wild radish used to be when i first got to georgia what 24 years ago it was a true winter annual where now it's behaving like a you know a winter and a summer annual you know, I've got seedling wild radish coming up in my peanut plots right now, for example. But it's interesting as you drive around South Georgia, if we don't do something in the fall, wild radish tends to be pretty bad. So one of the things that we've started doing, some growers have been spraying, and it's not just, you know, wild radish is a, is a side benefit. The main benefit is pigweed and um, tropical spider water after corn harvest. We've been spraying Gramoxone and Metribuzin. In the fall, like uh, after, again, I don't call that fall, it's going to late summer. Right. And then for pigweed, but then we're also getting the benefit of uh, wild radish, and then we can come back in in the spring, and generally we're, we're not having issues uh, with some of the crops that we rotate with. But that'd probably be the only thing we're doing in the fall. Uh, but then, and then again, that's more what I call a post-corn harvest treatment rather than a true fall burn down. You asked about wild radish, and I, I don't have any experience with it, but we could talk for a long time about odd, I guess, winter annual species and oddities in those species. We got one that's really bad right now that we call yellow crest. Can't mm-hmm. really kill with anything. Virginia pepperweed is doing some really crazy stuff right now. And then there's a laundry list of other ones that I, I really haven't connected all the dots on, but we seem to be shifting some some stuff around for whatever reason. It's interesting, you know. If everybody's been asking me why is wild radish such a problem, I don't. I just y'all remember the movie uh, 
Jurassic Park. I forget the guy's name. He said, nature finds a way. And I'm like, it's nature just adapting to whatever we're doing, whatever tillage, cropping systems, herbicides we're using. We're just making it happen. And wild radish is now an all-time weed, not just a winter annual, annual weed that you get in wheat. All right, Eric, I think really the one main topic that we definitely wanted to nail you down on was just weed control, general weed control practices in South Georgia that may apply to our peanut production system in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Generally, are, are you guys planting twin rows at all, or would you say you're mostly single row production? I'd say mostly single row production. I don't know that I've ever been in a twin row peanut field in Mississippi. We still have a fair amount of twin rows. So our, our general program, just to start off with, we're gonna we want to start clean, and that how do we start clean? We can use cover crops like rye, or we can use tillage, or we can use herbicides, or we can use all three. But I think every weed science is preaching that if we don't start clean, we're probably going to lose, and that's the same thing with peanuts, which is you know why we have been recommending Valor in our pre-plant burn down because if you come into a field and you're getting ready to plant and you got 12 inch tall pigweed. Uh, we really can't control that. So we have to do that, keep that from happening. So whatever we need to do to start clean, you know, for us, we planted twin rows, not a, not all our acres, but a fair amount of our acres. And, and if you look at the research that's out there, we get, a, would say on average, about a 10% increase in weed control when you compare a single and a twin. So that's helpful. And then using multiple residuals, I think about 74% of our, or somewhere between 70 and 75% of our peanuts get treated with Valor. Of course, we're big users of the yellows or DNAs, like Prow or Sonoland here. Uh, our number one grass is Texas millet or buffalo grass or bullgrass, depends on where, which county you're in. The yellows or Prow or Sonoland tend to do better on Texas millet than, say, Door or Warren or Outlook. Uh, but I know over your way, you know, you have some different species and those would be fine if you got crabgrass and goosegrass and some of those kind of summer annual grasses. But we really lean a lot on the yellow herbicides because of Texas millet, especially in a strip till situation. And then uh, we use a fair amount of strong arm here. Strong arm is an interesting compound. You know, that was first registered in 2000. So we've been using it now for 23 or 24 years. And a lot of our growers in the southwest corner will, it's very common to put a yellow herbicide out, either Prow or Sonoland, plus three ounces of Valor, plus a half rate of strong arm, which is very low rate. It's 0.225 ounces. And then that helps us with morning glory. And then that gives us an additional half rate that we can apply over the top later in the season. Uh, we have found over the years that the strong arm over the top can get us out of a lot of weird situations, Jason, that we run across from time to time, like Eclipta, Horseweed, Bristly Starbur, Cucklebur, Ragweed. There's about seven, Wild Radish, it's absolutely fantastic on Wild Radish. So there's about seven or eight weeds that over the top that Strong Arm is also very effective. Although if we're talking about Strong Arm, you got to talk about rotations, right? So we don't like to use Strong Arm if we're going to be planting vegetables in this one thing we've got to worry about here is you know, we could be rotating to uh, some kind of vegetable or maybe even onions. So we've got to watch what we're doing at Strong Arm. And then uh, we do still spray a lot of Paraquat, uh, what we call crapping sprays. You know, as a weed scientist, we would probably say the early post. 
applications, but we spray a lot of cracking sprays, which is kind of a a general name for a long period of time. Cracking for us can be, you know, the original definition was as it was, as we're talking, is you know the ground's cracking, but as it evolved into, well, from that period in time up to about 28 days after that time period, where we'll come in and spray uh, gramoxone and bassagran or gramoxone and storm tank mixed with a group 15 herbicide. And uh, that does a great job. I think that's one of the reasons, guys, that we have not had the problems with resistance that you guys have had is because in our rotations, uh, we are using gramoxone a lot in our peanut crop to help us knock out the pigweed that might have gotten through some of our residual programs, especially in a dry land field in a dry year. And then we'll come back. uh, We still use a lot of cadre. Probably 60 to 70% of our acres get treated with cadre despite our cotton rotations. Of course, we've got to worry about vegetables with cadre, especially watermelons in in particular. So uh, we use a lot of cadre. We use a lot of DB. Uh, We've been trying to get growers to put in multiple applications of Group 15s uh, when we can to to give us extra residual control of uh, pigweed and tropical spiderwort. That's about where we are. It's not uncommon. You know, we, we spray a lot of DB. There's some DB that goes out with, with either cadre or it might go out with a fungicide. Man, we I don't know, Tom, if you get a lot of questions, but uh, probably in another month, all I'll be talking about is tank mixes. Everybody wants to, you know, we're going to spray our peanuts five to seven times with a fungicide, and so nobody wants to go over the field more than they have to. So we'll we'll mix just about everything in the tank to try to keep that from happening, even though it could be a bad thing. We haven't gone to that extent yet in Mississippi, uh, but I suspect mm-hmm. the, and really our acres have fluctuated so much. I mean, we, like the high water mark, whatever year it was, we might've been 30,000 acres. And I struggled, yeah. that probably was 10 years ago. I feel like that was 10 yeah. years ago. And since then our acres have just fallen off the cliff. You know, we're probably, a 10,000 acre player, 10, 12 and a half, maybe 15,000. And I'd. I think you had about 14, you harvested about 14 in 2022. I don't, I don't have your projection for 2023, but you're probably around that. We're probably static on those acres. With the prevalence of strong arm and cadre, mm-hmm. the ALS inhibitors over here, we just don't use them a whole lot. We use some in rice just because of the prevalence of ALS resistance, mainly in pigweed, which is what drives the train here in our row crops. So with the prevalence of those two big player ALS herbicides on your peanut acres, which is a lot of acres in Georgia, why don't you think you've seen more problems with resistance to that mode of action than you have? Or or just resistance in general in other species like a morning glory? Because that's one thing we use it for over here is morning glory. Well, there's there's no doubt we have ALS-resistant pigweed. And so if a grower calls me and we're at the point where we're going to be you know, in that, say, 30 to 40-day period after peanut planting, my, my first question is, is well, how's cadre been working for you in the past? Because, you know, most of the guys would know if they're having trouble with ALS herbicides. And, of course, I ask them what they're going to be rotating to is my next question. But we still have a lot of fields that have yellow and purple nutsedge. So cadre is still, you know, one of the, those are the weeds that we really use it for is nutsedge. Of course, it does a lot on other weeds, but 
that's the main weeds that we typically use it for. And, and we're, we're tank mixing sometimes. I mean, you're going to think this is crazy, but, you know, sometimes depending on the scenario, we might tank mix Cadre, Blazer, the Group 15, and 24DB all together, depending upon what's going on in that field. That sounds like a lot, and it is. Peanuts can tolerate that, but, you know, we have done that in certain situations because if, if yeah, and you, you've probably seen this. If you've got pigweed and you don't know that it's resistant and you spray cadre and then you come back and find out, it's probably too late that you're going to be able to do anything. Tom and I work in rice, so it's not uncommon to get some pretty kooky tank mixtures with three, four different things at once. I've got a whole file that I've, this is my, I guess, what, 26 year working on peanuts or so, 27. I've got a whole file of, of pictures that I've, Tank mixes that I've tried and tank mixes that other people have tried, good and bad, you know, what the injury symptoms might look like. And I figured, I tried to do the math one time. There's probably you know, seventy five to 90,000 tank mixes we could spray on peanuts if you look at all the different products and the time of day and whether you want to use a crop oil or a surfactant and put boron in there or you know, the list is endless, so it's almost impossible to know what's going to happen on any given day with a specific tank mix. That's high-level math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's why you got grad students. They can help you figure that out. <laughs> we don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to hear your take on the survey that you did among the weed scientists in the South. So I was a part sure. of that, and a lot of the other guys were, too. So set that up and then kind of communicate some of the results that you found on that. Sure. So uh, as an extension specialist, right, I spend a lot of time in the field looking at different things and like everybody else and getting different calls on different things. And so I came up with what I would call a, a list of five common problems. And those would be uh, off target movement, sprayer contamination, uh, mixing and jug errors, herbicide carryover lookalike problems like nematodes or pH or some other problem, and then true herbicide carryover. And so I came up with that list. And, you know, there are other problems. Don't get me wrong. These aren't the most herbicide resistances and in there, for example, and that's probably number one on everybody's list. But these were just five problems that I tend to deal with every year. And so I, I sent that list out to 20 extension weed specialists across the southeast from Missouri all the way up into Virginia and everybody I got 20 responses back so everybody responded which was great and I asked them to rank those those five on a one to two, five scale so what of those five which would be number one and what would be number five it's kind of interesting if you look at how people responded and I'll, I'll share a couple of thoughts but just to break it down that the number one uh, it actually got a, a 1.9, right? Was uh, off-target movement was number one. Sprayer contamination was number two. That uh, was with a, an average of 2.1. Mixing and jug errors was uh, 3.3. Carryover lookalikes was 3.5, and true herbicide carryover was the uh, was a 4.4. So that was the least likely, least seen problem. And it all came about for me, especially this spring. My phone rings off the hook in the spring with herbicide injury problems, as we were talking about earlier, that usually turn out to be nematodes or some kind type of fertility problem that have nothing to do with herbicide carryover. So 
which is it's interesting that everybody thought that that was the least least common problem of the five problems that I, I presented to them. Of course, off-target movement was number one, and it was, that was interesting. Jason is, you know, in the Mid-South. You guys all ranked that number one, but uh, Culpepper and I had that at number three or four, right? Because we hadn't had the problems that you've had. For me, my number one was uh, mixing errors, uh, and then uh, off-target movement was somewhere down the line. So, it's interesting. Other folks, everybody has dealing with different crops, so you 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 see different things. Again, we have a lot of vegetables here in South Georgia, so that's always an issue. Herbicide carryover to vegetables is it always an issue? So for Stanley, for example, that was high on the list. Where for me, it wasn't, and and mostly everybody else. So it's interesting to see the differences, but I, I think they can be easily explained by the crops that we grow and the rotations that we're in. So. But the off-target movement definitely came out as number one across the Southern Extension wheat specialist. And her true herbicide carryover was the least. You don't ever want to be the guy in a group like that that's completely different from everybody else. And I don't think there there was a case like that among yeah. those folks that responded. I thought it was pretty consistent. And a thing that I found interesting about it, Eric, you said the weed scientists across the southeast and that's true but then kind of like the sub regions too like the mid-south guys arkansas louisiana mississippi there was some continuity right. in those two three state areas as well there was so I, and i think it's you know the crops that you grow and the rotations that you're in and the you know the off-target movement obviously for, for is big for everybody but it's been more of an issue in your area than it has been in ours and there's there's a lot of reasons why that's probably happening but i don't know that anybody had the same exactly the same uh rankings i, I would say this if daniels and i did daniel stevenson and i from lsu we had the same number so it was interesting that he and i had the same things even though he's in louisiana and i'm in south georgia so that's definitely interesting because uh, uh everybody sees a few different things every year what's your conclusion from that, Eric, what can you tell people after looking at that and, and knowing how folks similar to yourself across this part of the country think? What's your take-home message? Well, I think that off-target movement still needs to be at the top of everybody's list. Right? We have to make sure that we are doing the best job possible keeping all pesticides, not just herbicides, on target so we can help assure the public that we're growing our food safely and protecting endangered species. So off-target movement, uh, whatever we can do to mitigate that. But if you look at the other two that, that, that are common, the sprayer contamination and mixing jug errors, that's just flat-out human error, right, where most of these problems are self-inflicted, where growers, and I can't blame them, right, I'm not farming 10,000 acres or whatever, so I don't know what that's like, but Sprayer contamination and mixing jug errors happen because you're in a rush. And when you're in a rush, uh, you make mistakes. And then uh, that's what hurts us. And we got to do everything we can up front try to keep those from happening because those are preventable. I would consider uh, all those problems preventable uh, with just a little bit of forethought. But when you get in the heat of the battle, sometimes you just rush too much and these errors happen and then we're trying to figure out how to fix them. That's awesome, man. Tom, you got anything? Or, or just which thing happened? Because as a 
when you show up as the specialist on hand and have to attempt to deduce what occurred and that, you know, a couple of those on that list, at least in our region, rented land that just changes hands. And a lot of times mm-hmm. you have no contact information to determine what the previous landowner did. And, you know, sometimes that can explain it. I think, unfortunately, we, we land on that as a potential yeah. outcome in some of our answers, you know, cause I spend, I spend tons of time on the phone with Jason swapping pictures back and forth, you know, is this a herbicide issue or is it something else? Can I share one with you this year? That was kind of interesting. Cause it was something I had never seen before. This happened in a cornfield in, in East Georgia. We, as I mentioned, we use strong arm on a lot of peanuts, right? And the, the label rotation restriction for strong arm is 18 months. And so I try not to get people to use that in, in dry land fields, but it, you know, history has shown and research has shown that it doesn't necessarily have to be 18 months. But if you look at the label and you don't know anything about it, if you got a problem in your cornfield, you're going to say, well, that's got to be strong arm, right? Because it's got 18 month rotation restriction. But there's a lot of but what ifs and maybes to make that happen. So everybody was trying to, trying to blame strong arm. And I'm like, hey, this isn't strong arm. I know what strong arm looks like because I did several years of studies where I sprayed strong arm on the corn at a 2x rate and kept having it. You know, I kind of know what it looks like and know when it doesn't hurt it. And I'm like, it's not strong arm. It's not strong arm. And everybody didn't believe me. And then finally, somebody took a, a test, you know, a residue test. And you know what showed up? two herbicides that I had never seen before in corn. If you've never seen them in, in your life in corn, you're not going to know what they look like, right? So I didn't, you know, wind up being a herbicide, but I'd never seen those in corn. And how that got there was somebody spread fertilizer that that was impregnated with those herbicides for turf dry. And then they winded up spreading some on that cornfield. And then the, the fertilizer guy was the guy that owned the field, and he never told the farmer that he spread that. So the farmer had no idea that that went out. So it took us about two months to figure that one out. But that gets about what you're saying, Tom. Sometimes we, we don't get all the information that we need to try to figure out a problem. I hate worse than anything for my answer to be, man, I think something got on this field that wasn't supposed to be there, whether it was jug, mixing air, whatever because mm-hmm. that's one you'll never know for sure because you can't yep. uh, unless somebody knows when the accident occurs they still have the jugs you know if it happens pretty pretty quickly yep. oh yeah but i always tell people this is the weakest answer i can possibly give you but it's also i have no other idea what could have possibly gone on here except for the fact something got on here that wasn't intended to be here and i don't know if this is true over y'all's way but over here a lot of times for us the farmer isn't actually the sprayer right so the farmer tells the sprayer to do this and then assumes that that happens but he wasn't actually there during the mixing process so there's a disconnect between that not all the time but a lot of times and so when that happens you know you wind up talking to the farmer and he wasn't the one that was actually mixing so there's some there's some things that can happen there that you're never going to catch. I don't know how y'all feel. If I don't write something down anymore, I can forget what I did yesterday, and I just just did it. So if you don't write it down, you're not going to probably remember what happened, even if it's a day later. Hundred percent, man. Yeah, I find those to be challenging. You know, a lot of times you you think we you know, after you've been working for a while, you you kind of seen a lot of stuff, but there's always stuff that comes up and you're like, like you said, Jason, I'm like, man, I, ain't, I don't even know where to go from here. 
We appreciate your time this afternoon, Eric. Yeah, glad to visit with you guys. Always like sharing information, and that's how we keep out of having problems, sharing information. Dude, I appreciate it. I know you're busy. Tom doesn't even have his shirt tucked in today, so he's obviously busy. (laughs) I got to get down the road and look at some beans. So uh, have a good afternoon, and and good luck on the rest of your summer too, Eric. Same to y'all, and uh, great to visit with you, and I hope everybody has a it's rain when you need it and dry weather when you're harvested. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.